you stand with me for the reading of our gospel? It's a reason why we stand for the gospel reading. Um, the church has always affirmed that all of scripture is God-breathed, that it is, is all important and significant and is the voice of God. Um, and then there has also been something about the gospel reading, that as we speak about Jesus and not only speak about him, but we have a lot of his words in the gospel reading, that it's as if Jesus walked in the room in this moment I think all of us would stand to our feet, wouldn't we? Well, the beautiful thing the church has affirmed is that every time we read the gospel, Jesus is in the room. So we are hearing his words. So today, let's hear the gospel of the Lord. The gospel according to St. Mark chapter six, starting with verse one. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the 12 to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all this morning. Hope you had a good week. I want you to imagine for a minute um, with me your hometown, the place where you grew up, okay? Why don't we all close our eyes together and imagine this? Well, actually, open your eyes for a second. Open your eyes. How many of you are from Middle Tennessee? Raise your hand. All right, a couple of them. I, I call you unicorns. You're probably, not, uh, you're probably sick of hearing that, but you don't, hear, you don't meet many people around here who are from Middle Tennessee. Many of us are from other places. Nashville just tends to be one of those places that kind of people are drawn to. So now close your eyes. I want you to picture your hometown. Maybe it's Nashville, but maybe it's elsewhere. I want you to think for a minute about your neighborhood. Many of us, I've figured out here in Nashville, come from places that are smaller than Nashville. So maybe you're from a small town or an area that um, you kind of know people a little bit more. Or maybe if you're from a big city, you just think about your neighborhood, the people you know. Think for a minute about the streets that maybe you rode down on your bike as a kid. Think about the grocery stores that you went to. You know, the one that your family always went to. Maybe you can even remember today what it smelled like, what it felt like. I want you, for those of you that were raised in the faith, I want you to think about mama's church or daddy's church. 
you know what that church is like. You had good memories. You had maybe not good memories. <laughs> Remember getting in trouble for talking to your friend in church. And then you grew up. Open your eyes with me. It's a reason I want us to do this today. I, um, so I was back home this last week uh, in Tulsa, is where, I, where I'm from, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And actually, my dad kind of surprised me as we were driving. He drove through our first neighborhood, which I haven't been in in years and years and years, and, um, and kind of saw all the places that I remember as a kid and all the places that I went to. And, um, and there's something about a hometown that brings back all kinds of memories for us and the people who we knew growing up. I, my parents were on staff at a really visible large church in Tulsa. And so even though Tulsa's not a small town, I knew a lot of people when we went different places. So we'd walk into a place. And that was actually one of the things I had to get used to moving to Nashville is recognizing I'm going to go to a place today and not know anyone, <laughs> not have any sense of knowing anyone. Um, but there is that sense. There's that, you know your hometown, you know where you're from, and then there's people that you know. There's people who know your family, and even if they don't know you well, they kind of know your family, and there's intersections, and there's uh, things that cross over in that way. Some of you are musicians here today, and you might, when you uh, first started playing music, you started playing for family members first. And you remember there's kind of a vulnerable feeling to that, <laughs> like when you sing for your mom or your dad. And maybe if you're really little, like Lucy right now, she doesn't care. She sings at the top of her lungs and doesn't get embarrassed. Unfortunately, there will be a day where she'll create something and she'll be real nervous about it, she'll feel real vulnerable about it. But there's that feeling of what are they gonna think? And then those of you who are musicians, you remember maybe going to the local coffee shop and playing your first gig or singing in church for the first time, and you go, oh, there's something kind of weird about this, and your family and your neighborhood kind of knows what's going on. There's something really beautiful about showing those who you love and those who know you your art or your soul or something that's vulnerable to you, and there's something also really scary about that, isn't there? Some of you, it's not music, but maybe you went into business or you played sports, or, and there's something, somebody in your family or your neighborhood kind of watched you grow up, and there's this sense of they're rooting for you, they're behind you, they're encouraging you. And then also we know there's a little skepticism. Are they really grown up? I remember when those people were in diapers. I remember when that kid was running around, they can't really do that. <laughs> there's a cynicism and a skepticism. There's, I'm proud of them, and yet, yeah, we'll see, right? That's what happens with hometowns. I remember the first sermon that I gave in public. And I was 12 years old, and I was in a youth group. I'd given a lot of sermons to kids on the playground before that and to my family and things like that. But in public, it was in my youth ministry and I, and I was 12 years old and I came up with this sermon about the body of Christ. You know, Paul talks about the, the eyes and the ears and don't let the eye say to the yeah, hand and all that kind of stuff. So I basically came up with this analogy where every kind of person in the church, every kind of personality is, is exactly like one of these body parts, okay? So I, I went through this whole thing where like the, the preachers are the tongues, the theologians are the brains, the prophets are the eyes, the prayer warriors are the ears, the people who serve the poor are the hands, the missionaries are the feet, the encouragers are the butts, right? You fall down, they cushion, right? But I also got way too detailed. Started thinking about like kidneys and organs, different things and just too much. And it was too long. 
right? I, just doing too much stuff. And, and then I also remember saying, some of you are in here and you're like the hair and the fingernails. You look nice, but you're just dead cells. <laughs> so too much information, it just got too long. I just kept talking. You guys can't imagine me going too long on anything. But, but I remember loving being up there in front of people. I remember preaching, I remember that experience. And then also I went way too long. So I remember my youth pastor, when I got to the butt section, my youth pastor ran up and grabbed the microphone and said, and so go be a butt to somebody this week. Get out of here. Because we were way over time. <laughs> okay. I was embarrassed. I remember that. And then later in life, I remember being a 20-something-year-old associate pastor. Whenever I preached, it was just, are these people going to really take anything from what I say? Is there any respect that's going to come from this? Is there any value that's going to happen here? And I remember so many of the people in our church knew me when I was so young, so there was this sense of like, they were proud of me, but if I messed with their faith, if I challenged them on anything, it was, uh, I don't know. I remember that guy being a little kid. <laughs> I actually had someone tell me that I should never preach at our church um, because I had never raised kids. Preachers need to be able to raise kids before they're able to preach. Um, he said, when you raise kids, you know more about life. And I was fresh off of being a kid myself. And so I need to not be preaching at all. I took the opportunity to ask him about the Apostle Paul's credentials when it came to raising children. And then maybe Jesus, right? Um, but I will say there were exceptions to this. So I had, there's a, there's a little old lady that sits probably shouldn't say old lady because in case she listens to this podcast, but she, she was sitting on the, she sits on the front row of our parent church every week. And I remember when I was preaching at our church, she was a nursery worker in the church nursery when I was an infant. And she used to tell me whenever I'd preach, she'd go, it is such a joy to sit under your preaching after being working in the nursery when you were so little. She just loved that and enjoyed that. And there was a kind of a respect there. But there's something awkward about watching somebody grow up and step into their own. You see that child's awkward stages as they get older, don't you? Everything's out in front, all the mistakes, all the triumphs, everything in between. And then if you're the one who's growing up, it's a really vulnerable feeling. What are people gonna think about me? What are people gonna think about this thing as I step into my own? And then there's something awkward about the rejection that someone feels when those who have known them from the beginning are skeptical of them, when they don't seem to believe in you. I want you to think about that in, in context of Jesus going back to his hometown today. Um, layer on top of that, the fact that Jesus wasn't just doing a profession and he wasn't just a synagogue preacher. He was actually proclaiming something pretty profound. He was saying radical things about himself. He was saying, not only is the kingdom of God someday going to come and look like this, and here's the new interpretation of the law. He was saying, the kingdom of God has come now and it's come in me. Can you imagine if you changed his diapers when you were a kid, <laughs> right? There's something awkward and weird and strange about all of that. Jesus is saying the kingdom has come in me and he's preaching the message. He's been preaching this message all throughout the region, really all throughout this, the world as they knew it at that time. He's going around and then he comes home and he's been this wandering preacher and people know his reputation, but he comes home, he goes to the local grocery store. <laughs> he goes to mom's church. That's awkward, strange. What is he saying about himself? He's walking the town square and people are talking. What's going on? So the response is people are making fun of him. 
They've heard about his reputation, but they know him. So there's kind of a joke here in Mark's gospel that we don't always get because of the translation, but, but he's saying, what mighty, they say, what mighty works has, can he do with his hands, is what they say. And we think about miracles. What mighty works can he do with his hands? And then he, they say, isn't he the local carpenter? So in other words, it's, oh yeah, this guy does great mighty work with his hands. He could build a chair, is what they're saying. This is the handyman. This is the guy who puts things that are broken back together which on a deeper level, Mark is saying something here too. He is the handyman. He is the one who puts broken things back together, right? And we see once again, this mysterious connection between healing and faith. And we saw this last week too. And I was talking to a few of you after service on Sunday, and this is a difficult thing to explore. This connection between our faith and God's healing. And we can't really jump into that today, and it's not central to this passage today, but it does appear that lack of faith hinders in some way God's healing in these cases. God invites us to participate with his healing work. When we choose not to participate in his healing work, when there's rejection, something different happens. It doesn't work in the same way as what we see here. Um, but that's really tough for us to get our mind around. It is always God who heals. It's not up to us. It's not up to us having great faith, but there is this sense of if we close ourselves off, if we reject him, then God works in a different way, right? So the disciples are at this point of great confusion. It it seems that earlier in Christ's ministry, people were more open to him. And there were all these healings that were happening all over the place. And Mark is trying to get us to see at this point in the gospel that the tide has really turned, that people, instead of embracing him and flocking to him, are turning away from him, that they're rejecting him. So we get to this point where it seems like frustration is all that's happening. I don't know if you've ever been part of a movement or been part of something that seems like it's growing momentum for some period of time. And then all of a sudden, it seems like everywhere you turn, you just can't catch a break. Something just doesn't seem right. That's what they're feeling at this point. Rowan Williams says this, you must imagine the gospel aimed at a church that is perhaps a bit too much in love with wonderworking and success. A church that puts too much store by tangible signs of God's favor and assistance. Mark is writing for a church baffled and fearful because the signs and miracles aren't coming thick and fast. What is coming thick and fast is persecution and a sense of failure and threat. Mark is writing into the life of communities experiencing fear and disorientation. So you can get this sense of the disciples at this time of fear and disorientation. People are not being healed and they're just rejecting Jesus. If you expected a Messiah who would come and just gather more and more people and then ultimately have a military that would conquer Rome, you'd be really discouraged at this point. Everybody's turning away. Our numbers are declining, they're thinking. What is going on here? But just as miracles can be signposts of the kingdom, in some ways, rejection and resistance by the world is actually a signpost of the kingdom. Why? What are we talking about here? Well, rejection is actually pretty central to the way of Jesus. It's not the most seeker-sensitive, fun thing to talk about but really central to the life of Jesus is the fact that he is rejected. To the way of Jesus is that he's rejected. When truth steps into our world, when love steps into our world, when beauty steps in our world, 
When you have a world that's not true and not loving and not beautiful, it always rejects against that, right? It moves against that. The lack of faith or rejection in Jesus's hometown speaks to us today about something about who Jesus is, that he is true love and goodness and beauty. And by its very nature, in a broken world, those things, that person will be rejected. But that's always been the story. God works, humans reject or usurp that work. And yet the rejection is the sign that that thing is real. (laughs) Because what happens is it reveals who we are. When we reject true goodness, we show that we're not good or we're paled good, right? When we reject true love, it shows that we're really not loving. When we reject true, true beautiful, it shows this kind of ugly underbelly of who we are. Think about this. When Jesus went to the cross, right? The cross is this great way of actually revealing what the powers and authorities of the world were actually made of. Because here's this guy who's true goodness and true love and true beauty, and we kill him in the most horrible way possible. It shows who we are. It reveals who we are, right? So what, ha- so what happens is central to the Christian faith is always the reality. Everything in our world rejects the way of Jesus. So for the disciples, suffering and rejection always comes with it, and that includes ridicule even by those who are closest to us. The Apostle Paul, in our letter that we read today, illuminates this when he said that he was given a thorn in the flesh. And scholars have debated what was this thorn in the flesh that Paul was given. Was it a literal thorn? (laughs) Maybe he stepped in a thorn and it was just hurting really bad. Uh, Some people wonder if he had a problem with his eyes, that his eyes had some issues. Some people thought it was maybe a demon, an actual demon. Or some people said it was an annoying church member (laughs) who just kept bothering him. But he's got this issue, this thorn in the flesh. And he says, he keeps pleading with God, please take this away, take this thing away. It's hindering me. It's holding me back from ministry. And God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness, in your weakness. And then he says, so I boast all the more gladly about my weakness because in my weakness, he is made strong. Somehow we serve the God who's able to take weakness and make that a sign of his kingdom. Brokenness and make that a sign of his kingdom. That's our God, wow. He turns weakness into strength, turns resistance into glory. Now, Not everyone close to Jesus rejected him, okay? Uh, Jesus's family is mentioned here and their names are mentioned on purpose. Jesus's family had very Jewish revolutionary kind of names. So all the names were very biblical, right? Like they're they're straight from the scriptures and the stories of the Jewish people. They're revolutionary names. So the hearer of Mark's gospel is supposed to hear these names and go, these are faithful poor, revolutionary-sounding names. That's what people would hear. Like, these are people who are faithful to God and who he is. That's what they're supposed to hear as they hear these names. The last record that we have of any of Jesus's family, scholars believe, were the grandsons of his brother, Judas, okay? So if you look at church history, Judas, Jesus's brother, had a son, and we don't know his son's name, but his son had sons, so they would have been Jesus's grandnephews, And the grandsons of Jude or Judas were arrested and brought before the emperor Domitian in Rome in the 90s AD, okay? So that's that's what happened. Okay, so let me back up for a second. So Jesus had a brother. His brother had sons who had sons. Jesus has these grandnephews. 
It's 90 AD, so it's years and years after Jesus' resurrection, okay? And these sons, these grand-nephews grand of Jesus are dragged before the emperor of Rome. Why are they dragged before the emperor? Well, they were accused of being pretenders to the Jewish, Jewish throne, okay? So they were accused of being people who were like fake royalty, okay? Why were they? Um, well, the tradition says that um, because they were associated with Jesus that, and also associated with some of his relatives, that there was like this big threat. So they're dragged before the trial before the em emperor, and the emperor Domitian basically says, what can you do to show me that you're not trying to be fake royalty? And what they do is they hold up their hands, and their hands were, were uh, calloused and rough. And the royal hands were smooth. <laughs> so somehow them showing their rough and calloused hands that they work with their hands, that they're like tilling the soil or they're you know, working with their hands or doing hard labor or whatever, showed Domitian, all right, they're not trying to be fake royalty. So that's kind of this interesting story that's going on here. Um, so what Domitian does is he lets them go. He says, great, you're not royalty, that's fine. The most famous of Jesus's brothers was a guy named James. James became a great leader in the Jerusalem church and then ultimately became the central figure of Jewish Christianity. So what happened is Peter and Paul traveled the world, but James kind of held down the fort in Jerusalem. He was Jesus's brother. That's another, uh, I'm not gonna go on that tangent today, but, um, the, <laughs> but these were the names of the people who were closest to Jesus. And even in his hometown, as his hometown rejected him, not everyone rejected him his family, his mother became one of his closest disciples. His brother led the church in his name. The people closest to him were signs of his um, messianic claim. The second half of our passage today focuses on Jesus's call to his disciples. They go out two by two. Jesus gives them authority over unclean spirits. And they're given this authority over unclean spirits, but they're not given much else. They're told to pack light, to pack Spartan, okay? So they have no bread, they don't have a bag, they don't have money, they have two tunics and they have a staff, okay? That's all that they're called to carry. Now, this dress was common for one particular group in the first century, and it was a group of wandering philosophers who were called the cynics. Way before we came up with the word cynical, there was this group of people, the cynics. They were a, a group of philosophers. And what they would do is they would go from house to house and they would preach their philosophy and they would reprimand the rich for their wealth. And they would tell them, they would just be really harsh and go, all of life is horrible. You are horrible. Like you need to give away all your money. And by the way, pay me for this warning that I've given you, okay? <laughs> so that's what they would do. They'd go from house to house. They were called the cynic. They would give this warning. And the word cynic actually means dog, and the reason why they were given that name is they would go from house to house barking, is what people would say, okay? So these dogs, these cynics would go from house to house and they were annoying. I wonder if you ever feel that way about cynics in your life? <laughs> don't raise your hand, don't do that. But, um, but all cynics did is warn and spread this philosophy of the fact that your world and your material possessions are bad. They didn't cast out demons, which is what Mark tells us the disciples were primarily to do. And casting out demons was not just a way of providing people relief from their distress. It was a sign of the one who has authority over evil, that he has come, that the kingdom of God is near. 
Also, the disciples' message were different from the cynics in that their message was urgent. The cynics would go from place to place and they didn't really have any hope of a world made right. It was just like, the world's just bad. And the goal is just live your life in the best way you can because the world is bad. But the disciples would go from house to house. They would go from place to place and they would say, the kingdom of God is here. Wrongs are being made right. Reorient yourself. The one who is putting things together is near to us, is close to us. They came bringing hope. The one, yes, the world is a mess, but the one redeeming the mess is here and is near to you. So listen, repent. And their message was so urgent that even their appearance needed to reflect that. Don't take any extra stuff because we just need to tell people. They were in a hurry and the call is to repent. Repent doesn't just mean, I think sometimes we, in our world, we see people on street corners with signs that say repent. And it just means feel really bad about yourself. Feel really bad about what you've done. That's not what repent means. Repent is this political word, and it means change your entire outlook. Put a completely different frame on yourself and on the way you view the world. Move in a completely different direction. And this message is so urgent that Jesus says, if people don't buy into it, there's no time to lose. Like, don't worry about even the dust that was on your feet in their house. Like, just move on. We have to share this kingdom news with everybody. So why is this so urgent? Well, this was a community of people who had placed their trust in their status as God's chosen people. The Jewish people had um, trusted that we're God's special people. And so what had happened over time is they remembered the part that they were special and they had turned inwards and they had gone, we're the special people, we're the special people. They remembered that part, but they forgot the second part of their calling as God's people. And that was to bless all other peoples, to bless the world. So they had turned inwards, they'd become about God's special club, and they had then gone, the goal of life is we've got to liberate ourselves from our oppressors, so we got to gain military strength, and then we need to separate ourselves from people who aren't living right, and then maybe God will deliver us. The problem was Israel had always had a greater mission than that. They weren't just part of the God club and told to brag about it. They were called to bless the world those in need, the foreigners, the outsiders, the very people who they had been separating themselves from, they were called to bless. And from that blessing, all of this blessing was supposed to be centered in this place, the temple. So the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. It was supposed to be a place where God's power and God's presence and God's love radiated from into all of the world. That was supposed to be the temple. But instead, the temple had become a place of separation and exclusion, a place where people were cut off when they were unclean or sinful. And so what Jesus' proclamation is, and it's subversive here, is that the temple is being replaced because the kingdom of God is near. Jesus himself is the new temple. He is the place of healing. People were cut off from the temple, but now the temple is going to them, the new temple. God's presence was breaking through the walls of the temple and going to those who had been excluded and rejected. And this is exactly the kind of message the people in Jesus' hometown and the greater region did not want to hear, right? They had put their hope. They wanted to hear messages about a military Messiah who would ignore the weak and use the strong and the clean. They wanted to hear more messages about Jewish exceptionalism and fewer messages about the call to bless others. We get that in our world. We like systems. 
We like to think that our group, those who think like us, are the best. Those who live in the same part of the world that we do, those who share our political affiliation, those are the right ones. If you think like me, you're brilliant, right? If you don't, I think this way, you think that way, you're different, I think this way, you must be wrong <laughs> and bad, right? Um, if we mess with this idea that we are the only ones in the right, if you tell us that the kingdom of God will center on the people who are outside, the people who are others, the people who we've tried to spend our lives getting away from, yeah, I want to reject that too. But as we follow history, the history after the gospels, the temple, the center of the Jewish faith and worship, the center of systems of exclusion and nationalism, this temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So if you notice that, these, a lot of these gospels were written after or about that time when the temple was destroyed. So we see this warning, really, this prophecy of Jesus comes into effect that this thing that you've held onto, these systems, these structures, they're going to go away. And then in church history, it does go away. 70 AD, the temple is destroyed and the Jewish people are devastated. So the urgency is these systems you're holding onto, these counterfeit structures, the system of exclusion, it's all not going to last. They no longer look like who you've been called to be. So you need to, the process of repentance is this beautiful process of reorientation, of salvation. The Messiah has come. The embodiment of his kingdom has come. The call is going out. So the call to repent is lay down your allegiances, change your worldview, and cling on to something else. Why? Because he, Jesus, embodies who you were called to be in the first place. He embodies who Israel was called to be in the first place. And if people don't see that, if they're committed to holding on to their allegiances, Jesus told the disciples, you just have to move on from that. And that's probably another reason for their dress. They're called to pack sparingly in the same way that the children of Israel left in a hurry when they left Egypt. So if you read that story, like they're told, that's why we have unleavened bread. You've heard that in Passover. It's like, you don't even want to give the bread time to rise because you're in such a hurry. <laughs> so, so what's going on here is they're like, pack, dress lightly, move quickly, because this is an urgent thing. They are called to leave the oppression of sin and death behind and follow Christ with all that they are. In the C.S. Lewis classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, how many of you have ever read this or seen the movie? Okay, good, most of us. So The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's these four Pevensey children. That's their last name, Pevensey. And they wander into this strange land of Narnia, and it's a land that's plagued by a curse. So I won't get into all the story today, but it's plagued by a curse, and there's also these talking creatures everywhere they go, okay? And as a result of the curse, they say that in Narnia, it's always winter, but never Christmas. Now, these are children's stories, so you can imagine as a child, that's the worst thing ever. <laughs> always winter, but never Christmas? So that's what Lewis tells us here. Narnia is so bad, it's always winter, but never Christmas. So the children take refuge in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, I know I've said this a lot, but, but I don't get the new movie stuck in my head whenever I, I hear these stories. I think about the BBC version from the 1980s, and the beavers are these giant people in costume, <laughs> and they're just really cheesy, but, but I still get it with, with thick Scottish accents, by the way. But they tell them that in this place where it's always winter and never Christmas, that the king, the lord of the world, Aslan, is on the move. 
The beavers quote this old Narnian prophecy, which is just, oh, it's awesome, it's beautiful. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again, right? It's this beautiful thing. When the children find out that Aslan, this king, is a lion, they ask, well, is he safe? And again, I remember the thick Scottish accent of Mrs. Beaver, or Mr. Beaver, and he says, safe? I'm not gonna do the Scottish accent. Didn't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Of course, Aslan is the Jesus character in the Narnia stories. A way for Lewis to speak of God and to bring these elements of God's character to light in this genre of myth that he creates. But it's so important to remember our God is good all the way through. Our God is good all the way through. If you've been in churches or you've been in backgrounds where you've heard something different, that God is wrathful and angry and mean and mad at you, that's not our story. Our God is good all the way through. That's his character. His love endures forever. His faithfulness endures through all generations. And also in the face of pure goodness and true love and radiant beauty, our pale and broken world is a dangerous place to be because we reject that. We move against that. The way of Jesus is always uncomfortable and treacherous in a world of counterfeit stories. And this is where it's so hard. Love is by its very nature, a dangerous thing because love confronts the resistance in our world. I think when we talk a lot of times about loving our neighbor or loving each other, we think of like just this like kind of idealistic kind of world, but love like is a confronting thing. True love reveals all the other stuff in us that's not loving, doesn't it? Deliverance from evil is dangerous in presence of a world that wants to remain captive. All right, I'm gonna try to bring all this together here as we close. Our tendency with this story might be to try to place ourselves in the position of the disciples. That might be the first thing we do. We're the disciples. We're those who are called to go from house to house, casting out demons. And I think that's an appropriate thing to do. I think we are disciples of Jesus. We are called to proclaim his goodness and restoration. But I wanna suggest that first, we have to remember we're the people in the houses. Somebody told us about Jesus. Maybe when you were little tiny, maybe, maybe somebody you know, told you out of relationship at some point in your adult life, but you, somebody came to your house, to your place and told you this story. Somebody showed you who Jesus is. And as this message comes to our house today, it is both a dangerous message of judgment and a dangerous message of great hope at the same time. It is a message of judgment. And it's a message of judgment because if the kingdom of God has come in Jesus, it means all the false structures that we cling to, like the temple for first century Jews, are being called out as incomplete. And, and are being told that eventually they're going to go away. They're not going to last into God's new world. So are we building our lives, for example, on earthly success? That's gonna pass away. And there's an urgency to this calling. Like you've gotta let that go because it's not going to last into God's new world. It's going to be empty. 
There may be a moment in your life where you find that success just doesn't come. Earthly success just doesn't come. What are you going to do then if that's what you've been chasing? Or maybe you get all the earthly success in the world. That's what we'd prefer, right? (laughs) We get all the earthly success in the world, and then we get to this point in our lives where we look back and we go, gosh, I'm still empty, still lacking. Are we building our lives on the approval of others? trying to get others to love us and accept us. Um, Ashley and I have learned, even over the past several years, that friends and relationships kind of go in and out of our lives. I mean, that sounds like an obvious statement to make, but there are some very, very few friends who you have throughout your life. Most relationships are, they come for a while and then they leave. If you build your life on just getting everybody to like you and approve of you and get all your friends to be happy with you, it's going to fail. It's not going to last, and that's okay. We can value these relationships for what they mean in a specific time and place, but approval of other people can't be everything for us. Do we believe that the next purchase that we make is gonna fix it? The next hit that we take of whatever is gonna fix it. The next experience that we have, if, we just, if I just travel more, <laughs> if I just have more beautiful, wonderful experiences, then that's gonna make my life full and complete. It's not gonna fix it. All those things, are many of them can be fine in and of themselves and good and beautiful and wonderful and God's gift in and of themselves, but they can't be everything that we're chasing because they don't last into God's new world. Okay, so that's the message of judgment, all right? But Christianity is not just a message of that. It's not just a negative calling out. It's also a message of hope. The two really are completely connected. Jesus is calling us to be who we are created to be. The Jewish people were called as God's people to bless the world. They were really called to renew the human calling to bless and steward the world. Think about that in Genesis, our creation story. Human beings are called to bless and to steward all of creation. And Israel became God's representatives of that in a broken world. But the good news is that Jesus is healing and restoring the world. And the good news is he's leading us now into a true humanity, into our true calling. I thought about each of you as I was writing this message this week. I mean, I do on some level every time, but I was thinking about you and thinking about, um, it's just so fun to see a community of people from all over the country, even all over the world, Fiorella is not here today, but, <laughs> um, but people all over, all over the place coming together with different personalities and gifts and interests that are bound together in Christian community. Some of you are warm and bubbly people. You never meet a stranger. That I kind of like it when you, somebody walks in the door and you're just there and you just meet them and you welcome them. And I'm like, oh, what warm, wonderful people. Some of you are introspective and quiet And the more I've gotten to talk to you, I go, there is so much going on in their brain right now. And it is so wonderful and it is such a blessing to see all of your personalities and what's going on in your minds and hearts and your day-to-day lives fascinate me. As I hear the hearts of those of you who are teachers for your students, social workers and counselors for your clients, nurses for your patients, 
those who work in customer service and get to encounter people on an everyday basis, those who sit and get to think all day as they work on spreadsheets or they you know, tackle paperwork and different things like that. And I, I think it's so amazing what happens in the people that you get to encounter in your everyday life. And then all of you have some sense of here's my day-to-day, but also you have your eye on the systems that you're involved in and the structures. And you know the things that are wrong about the systems that you're present with, but you also know the things that you can be part of restoring and healing and seeing Christ at work in. We are not cynics as Christians. The good news of Jesus is not that everything is bad and is about to be judged. The good news is that Jesus is pointing us toward a true humanity. He's inviting us to join in, that there's a better way. And I believe that he takes all of the stuff, the personalities that he's created us with, even with their brokenness, our past experiences, our relationships, and he does, he makes something beautiful out of it. And there's an urgency to that calling, leave behind the stuff that is fleeting, that won't last, and cling to this new way, trust in him. And as that message settles in our hearts and minds, it leads us to move with urgency to others' lives proclaiming healing and deliverance that is here in Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for your calling that the kingdom of God is here, that you've come into our world, that you're in our midst, that your calling is different from that of the cynics (laughs) that would say, yeah, everything's bad, just try to do better. But Lord, there is great hope in you. I pray today that as we think about the disciples and we think about you, those with your authority coming into our house, that you would shine light. That's really what judgment is, that you would shine light on those places that we've held onto, those systems that are corrupt and fleeting. Lord, help us to recognize those places and to give them to you. Lord, also, would you point us to the places that you're at work so that we can join in. Lord, today, I, I just help us to be comfortable with the fact that your movement is dangerous, that there's rejection that comes with it, that it's not all health and wealth and success, that it's challenging, that there's a deeper hope and a deeper reality. But Lord, thank you that you're with us every step of the way, even when rejection is as close as our hometown and our family. Lord, we trust in you today. We, as we come to the communion table today, this is a way of us saying this meal is, means that we're part of something different, part of something bigger than ourselves. So we lay down our allegiances today, take up our cross, and we follow you. And we thank you that your words lead us to eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.